0: Help us tell stories about living on this earth. Please make your charitable contribution today at LOE.org. Guns, Germs, and Steel and Collapse are two of the most influential social anthropology books ever written. Now author and UCLA professor Jared Diamond is out with a new volume, The World Until Yesterday. Professor Diamond intended to write a small book of personal memoirs but says his editors had other plans. So the book evolved
1: into an examination of traditional small societies all around the world throughout history, laced with my anecdotes from New Guinea, and learning what lessons these societies have to teach us about how to conduct our own personal lives.
0: This new book opens at an airport in Port Moresby, the capital city of Papua New Guinea, where Diamond was struck by the rapid modernization of the island's peoples over the decades that he's done fieldwork there.
1: It's taken a couple of hundred thousand years for anatomically modern humans in many parts of Eurasia to transform themselves from hunter-gatherers without writing to farmers and industrial people with writing. But in New Guinea... This has happened in parts of New Guinea within a few decades. And some friends of mine in New Guinea grew up making stone tools. And then by the time I met them, they were using steel tools and they had writing. The changes have been telescoped in New Guinea into a short time.
0: One of your most interesting observations was of the different number of people that were in the modern airport and how they would have behaved in the past. Can you describe some of that for us? sure the new guinea capital city
1: airport that i was in in 2006 was a normal airport and that when i came in there there was nobody else in that airport whom i knew everybody was strangers the baggage attendants all the other passengers and for me of course that's no big deal in our modern society we're always encountering strangers on my drive down here today everybody that i was passing was a stranger but in traditional New Guinea and in any traditional society, people don't move. If you move, there are rules about who is your friends and who are your enemies. Any stranger is assumed to be an enemy. And so that 2006 New Guinea scene where I was surrounded by strangers would have been unthinkable in traditional New Guinea. I would have freaked out. I would have expected to be killed instantaneously. I would have run or started attacking other
0: people. Now, you tell an interesting story uh, in Papua New Guinea about this tension among strangers and then how folks defuse the war that would otherwise begin. And what I'm thinking of is this story of this driver for a company who's zipping along. Uh, A kid darts out from behind a bus and gets run over and killed. The driver, of course, is now expecting that uh, this little boy's family will try to kill him. How did the situation get resolved and... How does that reflect traditional values, and how might we use those values today? It's
1: a gut-wrenching story that was told to me by a friend of mine who was in New Guinea. There was a traffic accident, so a kid ran out incautiously across the street and got killed. If such a thing happens in the United States, the state intervenes. There may be a criminal case if the driver was incautious. And certainly, there may be a civil case where the relatives of the dead child are going to sue the driver for um, having killed the child. In New Guinea, it's different. In this case, the next day, the father of the dead boy came to visit the employer of the driver. And the employer was afraid that there was going to be violence, but no. The father of the dead boy wanted to settle the matter in the traditional New Guinea way by payment of compensation. In this case, the compensation was large by New Guinea standards. It was several hundred dollars and some food, but trivial by our standards. And after negotiations, on I think the fifth day after the accident, the relatives of the dead boy, the father and mother and uncles, sat down together for a meal with the employer of the driver. They made speeches in which they talked about missing the dead boy. My friend made a speech in which he ended up crying because he said, I'm identifying with what you must be going through because I also have young children and nothing can compensate for the death of a young child. The end result after five days was that the whole matter was settled. There was emotional clearance. The people went on with their lives. Whereas in the United States, The idea that after five days you would sit down with the killer of your child is unthinkable. Instead, there would be a lawsuit. And so this story illustrates that in New Guinea, disputes are settled in a way that aims at emotional clearance and getting on with your life, whereas in a state government, you never meet the person again. The last thing you care about is emotional clearance, and you'll spend the rest of your life churned up with feelings left over from the accident.
0: You now traditional society, uh, in many respects, sounds wonderful. And then there are horrible things like killing babies. Uh, you mention in your book that sometimes, uh, if a baby is born has a deformity, or in the case of twins, the mother will kill the newborn for the sake of the tribe as a whole. Can you explain that?
1: Yes, it's true that in many traditional societies, babies who are born impaired are killed. What on earth, though, can you do if you're living in a marginal society? It's also the case that in traditional societies, some of them ab- abandon or kill their old people. But again, what on earth can you do if you're a small group that is walking to the next camp and you've got an old person who is not capable of walking? So there are both things that we find horrible in traditional societies, and things that we find wonderful about them, often how they bring up their children, often how they treat their old people, how they approach danger, how they remain healthy.
0: When you write about the elderly, you entitle your chapter Treatment of Old People, Cherish, Abandon, or Kill, and I suppose that sums it all up, but perhaps you could expand on that for us.
1: Those are the extremes of choices about what to do with old people, and this is an issue that interests me increasingly, having past my 75th birthday some months ago. I used to, when I was a child, I thought of 75 as being really old. And now it feels to me as if I'm entering the prime of life. So in traditional societies, depending upon the circumstances, old people may be abandoned if there's no way of taking care of them. For example, if the society is nomadic, old people may be encouraged to commit suicide. They may be actively killed. But at the opposite extreme, in traditional societies that are sedentary, that live in permanent huts and villages where it's easy to take care of old people then older people will spend their old years surrounded by their children and relatives and friends and they have a much more socially rich life satisfying life they have much more value than in modern american society
0: i thought the section on raising children uh, was really fascinating here in the in the us uh, most of the games our kids play are teaching them well, how to compete with their peers. But in your experience from New Guinea, the games that uh, children play are largely about teaching them how to share. Why do you suppose that is? Probably
1: because they're living in small societies where the people with whom you're playing games are the people that you'll be dealing with for the rest of your life. It's the case that in a really small society, one individual is not supposed to get ahead. Instead, an individual who's successful is expected to share what he or she acquires with other people. But conversely, if you are down on your luck, then you can get food and other things from other people. So sharing is necessary for survival in traditional societies in contrast in modern american society we stress the individual getting ahead you do as well as you can and you're certainly not going to share everything you've acquired with all of your relatives and cousins and people that you knew 10 years ago
0: as we were preparing for our interview with you uh, this was happening just as the mass shooting came to light in, in newtown connecticut And um, I kept wondering, how would a tribal community handle a member of the tribe who was emotionally unbalanced in that way? I'll give you an example of how
1: a tribal community did deal with a member of the tribe who was emotionally unbalanced. This example came from the Kung San people of the Kalahari Desert of Southwest Africa. The Kung formerly, occasionally killed each other. And when state control was came into place over the Kung, the killing stopped. But there was, among the last killings, there was a Kung man who was really dangerous and possibly deranged by our standards. He had killed several people. And finally, what happened is that a group of men went into his band. He was there surrounded by members of his band. And in the presence of his relatives, they killed him. The relatives did not interfere because they recognized that this guy was dangerous and deranged. They were too afraid to take care of him themselves, but they did not interfere when other people eliminated him. And so that's one way to deal with dangerous people in small-scale societies.
0: You coined a term in this book that you call constructive paranoia. And you write a couple of chapters about dangers and how to stay safe with this concept. Tell me more about this. Sure. Dealing with danger is one of the
1: things that I observed in New Guinea and that I learned and that's had the biggest impact on my own life, my attitude towards danger. I was camping out with some New Guineans. I was picking campsites in a forest, and I picked what I thought was a gorgeous campsite under a colossal, beautiful tree. And the New Guineans with me freaked out, and they said, we're not going to sleep under this tree. I uh, what's the matter? Why not? They said, because the tree is dead. And I looked up, and yes, it is dead, but it was such a big, huge tree that I said, it's not going to fall down for 50 years. Don't be silly. But no, they were not going to sleep under that dead tree. I thought that the affairs were exaggerated, but then, as I spent more time in New Guinea forest, I realized, okay, so the chance is one in a thousand that this tree is going to crash on me tonight. But if I expect to spend 10,000 nights in the forest because I hope to live to 30 years and I'm going to spend a lot of my time in the forest, if I ignore one in a thousand risks by the time I've run that risk 10,000 times, I'll have died 10 times over. How that affects me now is that when I shower in the morning, I recognize that for older people, slipping in the shower is one of the big risks of life. And yes, the chance of my falling down on the shower this morning was only one in a thousand, but I intend to take a shower every day for the next 20 or 30 years. And if I'm not careful in the shower, then I'm going to end up with a broken hip and probably be dead. So that's an example of constructive paranoia guiding my own life. I'm very, careful about small things that each time you do them aren't dangerous, but will eventually catch up with you if you're not careful.
0: Jared Diamond, you are 75 years old now, and you spent most of your adult life traveling back and forth to remote corners of the earth and spending time among traditional tribal peoples. So, how did the things you learned in that time inform the way you live your life and the way that you raised your own children?
1: One is my attitude towards danger that I mentioned. The other is raising children. So I have twin sons who are now 25 years old, and my observations of New Guinea, New Guineans raising their own children informed my raising my children. One thing is that New Guineans and traditional people in general allow their children as much freedom as possible. They consider children to be autonomous creatures capable of making their own decisions. And I let my kids make their own decisions insofar as possible. There were some surprising results. At the age of three, my son Max fell in love at first sight with snakes. My wife and I are not snake lovers, but all right, Max loves snakes. Let's help him keep snakes as pets. And Max ended up with, 147 pet snakes and frogs and lizards. Eventually, he got beyond snakes, and he got interested in cooking, so he's now a professional chef. But that's an example of allowing kids the opportunity to choose what they want. And still another example is that never, not once, did I ever hit my children. I found that it was possible to get them to do what was necessary to discipline them without hitting And that's, again, something that I've learned from New Guinea. You never, never
0: hit a child. Jared Diamond, what can we expect next from you? Another book, I suppose?
1: Yes, I already have an idea for another book, which I expect to publish around my 82nd birthday. But I'm still thinking about what might go into that book.
0: Seven years to write.
1: Yes. They take a long time.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Jared Diamond. You're welcome. Jared Diamond's latest book is called The World Until Yesterday, What We Can Learn from Traditional Societies.